Growing up in Poland in the early 1900s, Raphael Lemkin would witness numerous massacres and systematic expulsions of Russian Jews, a practice known as a pogrom. Observing these horrific events was likely what led Lemkin to pursue a career as a lawyer, specifically one who represented and spoke up for marginalized groups throughout the world. His mission was to hold accountable governments or despots who perpetrated ethnic cleansing or mass murder. As a young man, Lemkin attempted to alert world leaders to the rabid anti-Semitism sweeping through Western Europe. Unfortunately, he was mostly ignored. And when people finally did start taking notice, it was too late. By that time, the Nazis had murdered six million Jews, hundreds of thousands of Roma, and untold numbers of other so-called undesirables. It was Lemkin who, in his 1944 book, coined the term this atrocity is known by today, genocide. He wrote, By genocide, we mean the destruction of a nation or of an ethnic group. To denote an old practice in its modern development, it is made from the ancient Greek word genos, race, tribe, and the Latin side, killing. While Lemkin coined the term genocide in an analysis of the Nazi regime, his understanding of genocide came much earlier, when as a teenager he learned about another atrocity, the genocide perpetrated by Talat Pasha against Ottoman Armenians. Welcome to Dictators, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm Richard. And I'm Kate. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. This season of Dictators, we're exploring the lives of three despotic monarchs who ruled in the decades leading up to World War I. King Leopold II of Belgium, Franz Josef I of Austria-Hungary, and the three Pashas of the Ottoman Empire. Last week, we explored the rise of Mehmet Talat Pasha. We explored how his difficult childhood and his disdain for the ineffectual Ottoman Sultan led him to form a political movement designed to return the Ottoman Empire to its former glory. This week, we'll look at Talat's role in leading the Ottoman Empire through World War I and his orchestration of the Armenian Genocide, one of the worst atrocities of the 20th century. We'll also explore how this event finally brought his ignominious reign and life to an abrupt end. Coming up, we'll return to the failing Ottoman Empire. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Hi, I'm Blair. Want to hear something scary? Join me as I read the creepiest urban legends, folk tales, and ghost stories that I learn on my travels around the world and that we receive from listeners like you. But only if you think you can handle it. 
Listen on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, sweet screams. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. For over 600 years, the Ottoman Empire was ruled by a single figurehead known as the Sultan. But after a centuries-long decay and a final 1913 putsch, the once vast Ottoman Empire was being led by a group of young populists, the Committee of Union and Progress, or CUP. The most powerful and influential of the young populists was a radical named Talat Pasha. Pasha wasn't his actual surname, but the designation of a high-ranking Turkish leader or officer. After leading the 1913 putsch, Talat became the Minister of the Interior. This role put his rank second to one person, the Grand Vizier. In reality, however, the Grand Vizier was little more than a figurehead. Each and every important decision required Talat's knowledge and at least his tacit approval. The key to 39-year-old Talat's approval was simple. Everything had to fall in line with his main focus, restoring the former glory of the Ottoman Empire. For Talat and the rest of the CUP, that agenda wasn't the least bit practical. Their military was archaic and disorganized. There was little confidence in the government among the Ottoman populace, and many minority groups were seizing upon the chaos within the halls of government and planning their own independence movements. In fact, during the political turmoil plaguing the empire, ethnic Armenians and other Christians actively sought out help from several European governments. They wanted these powerful nations to step in and negotiate on their behalf with Talat and the CUP. Most Christians within the empire had been Ottoman subjects for hundreds of years. But as a minority population in a majority Muslim empire, they often experienced prejudice and felt like second-class citizens, not to mention they had no representation in the new government. After international pressure from Europe, Eventually, the Ottoman government agreed that representatives from Germany could outline a plan to monitor the treatment of Christians in the Ottoman Empire. Inspectors from neutral countries would be selected to ensure that the Ottoman Christians were not subject to any kind of undue oppression. They would also help find ways to incorporate Armenians into local politics and into Ottoman society overall. Armenians were hopeful. The plan seemed decent, in theory, but it remained to be seen if this agreement would or could actually work. In the meantime, Talat and the CUP set out to bring back the glory of the empire. To do so, they relied on what historian Hans Lucas Kaiser has described as a Turco-Muslim definition of the Ottoman nation that was steeped in the idea that betrayal by non-Muslims had caused the late Ottoman problems and losses. This nationalist ideology was at the heart of the new regime's policy, 
though it still wasn't clear what exactly that policy would look like. And then, an unexpected opportunity presented itself, one which allowed Talat and the CUP to show what they were about. In late June of 1913, Bulgaria invaded both Greece and Serbia. The attack was in retaliation for not receiving enough Ottoman territory after their shared victory in the Balkan Wars a year earlier. Throughout 1912, four recently independent Balkan nations rose up to claim Ottoman land. And a year later, Bulgaria wanted more. Talat used this 1913 invasion as a pretext for an Ottoman invasion of his own. Specifically, he wanted to reclaim the city of his birth, Edirne, which had fallen into Bulgarian hands. Likely because the Bulgarian military was spread too thin, the Ottomans prevailed. But in doing so, they spent desperately needed funds that further crippled the already flailing economy money that was specifically designated and earmarked for infrastructure projects at home. But the Ottomans had Adirna back, so in Talat's eyes, the mission was a success. The recapture of Adirna set up a series of negotiations between the CUP and the Greek government. But Talat was intent on going to war to recover previously lost Greek islands, during this time, CUP legbreakers began terrorizing Greek Orthodox Christians, also known as Rum, living in the Ottoman Empire. They ultimately forced nearly 100,000 people to flee to Greece. Internationally, this aggression against the Rum seemed to go largely unnoticed and certainly unpunished. But it set the stage for future Ottoman-led pogroms throughout the empire. These pogroms would go largely unnoticed, since they just so happened to occur during the largest and deadliest conflict the world had ever seen, World War I. After the assassination of Austrian Archduke Franz Ferdinand in Sarajevo on June 28, 1914, Eastern Europe's conflict with the Ottomans took a back seat to the conflict threatening to envelop the entire continent. First, the fear of war decimated the European economy, and countries began scrambling to forge alliances against the Central Powers, which included Germany and Austria-Hungary. But for Talat and the Ottomans, the outbreak of World War I wasn't that big a deal. Their country had already been at war with its neighbors for several years, and its economy was already in the gutter. If anything, perhaps a war presented an opportunity. Talat decided that a global conflagration was the perfect background for making new friends and decided to ally the Ottoman Empire with a more powerful European country. But it wasn't just Talat making the large-scale military decisions. There were two other pashas involved. Ismail Anvar Pasha and Ahmed Chiamal Pasha. Ahmed Chiamal, if you recall from last week, met Talat while the two were in exile in Salonika. Meanwhile, Ismail Anvar was an early member of the CUP party prior to the Sultan's abdication. Once the CUP came into power, he quickly rose through the ranks of the military and became the Minister of War. Together, this military-minded triumvirate became known as the Three Pashas, and while technically all three were in power, 
It was really Talat who masterminded just about everything they did. In their infinite wisdom, the three Pashas chose Germany to cozy up to. Despite Germany agreeing to oversee the monitoring of Christian communities in the empire, relations between the two governments were actually fairly friendly. So the Pashas figured that fighting alongside the Germans was a natural step forward. Of course, the Ottoman military was hardly a powerhouse capable of helping the Central Powers take over Europe. Ottoman forces ultimately numbered only around 3 million, while Germany had around 13 million. However, the alliance with the Ottomans did offer the Germans several strategic and geographic advantages. For one thing, they could now move German warships into Turkish waters, enabling naval attacks on two of their enemies, Russia and Greece. For the Ottomans, meanwhile, the German alliance eventually put an end to Germany overseeing the Ottoman Christians. Now, Talat and the CUP were free to oppress and persecute whomever they wished. But first, the war represented a real tangible opportunity for Talat and the power-hungry CUP to expand their empire. All eyes were on Germany. No one was paying attention to whatever little invasions the Ottomans could pull off. But that didn't mean they could pull off much. With very little actual military experience, Talat and the other two Pashas bit off more than they could chew. The agenda for the Ottomans involved a nebulous, poorly planned series of invasions ranging from Egypt to the Caucasus. And in almost each case, the Ottoman army got absolutely dominated. There was one shocking victory during this period, however, orchestrated by Ahmed Chiamal Pasha, the Battle of Gallipoli. Beginning in January 1915 and masterminded by Winston Churchill, the Entente powers sought to sail their warships into the Strait of Gallipoli. Their ultimate goal was to invade the Ottoman capital of Istanbul. Somehow, a ragtag group of German warships and a contingent of Ottoman and German soldiers managed to repel the attempted invasion. After a year of bloodshed and heavy casualties on both sides, the Entente powers retreated. The Battle of Gallipoli would become perhaps the most famous modern Ottoman military triumph. It was also a monumental and wildly significant victory that seemed to give credence to Talat's nationalist, populist promises. In the wake of Gallipoli, Talat was no longer viewed as a simple pasha or leader. He was now something closer to a savior, one who had earned his citizens' respect and admiration, and one who could now act with virtual impunity. The Ottomans seemed unable to achieve another military victory like Gallipoli. As they suffered defeat after defeat abroad, Talat and the two other pashas knew that it could bring down morale throughout the empire. What they needed was a distraction, someone to blame for their defeats. As we've seen so often on dictators, every despot needs a scapegoat. Whether it's the intellectuals or the uneducated, the communists or the bourgeoisie, the Christians or the Jews. For Talat, the perfect scapegoat was the Armenians. 
It's unclear whether Talat actually believed that the Armenians were the only thing preventing him from making the Ottoman Empire great again, but what is clear is that he sought to spread this propaganda far and wide. The Armenians represented a perfect target. They were a minority. They had already been the victims of systemic oppression and murder. And most importantly, they had nowhere to run. Coming up, Talat orchestrates the Armenian Genocide. The CIA. They're the first line of defense for the United States, analyzing intelligence to thwart any possible threats and keep us safe. Some of their involvements are made public, and others aren't. Hi, it's Carter from Parcast, and in honor of America's birthday, we're uncovering the cases you were never supposed to know about in the new series, Conspiracy Theories CIA Edition. From international assassination plots and mind control experiments to catastrophic cover-ups and secret societies fit for film, sift through the agency's most questioned and controversial affairs. Each week, Conspiracy Theories CIA Edition exposes the covert operations intended to protect us from conflicts, but end up creating conspiracies. Where does the truth lie? Where do the lies end? And how much do we really want to know? Follow the new Spotify original from Parcast, Conspiracy Theories CIA Edition. Listen every Thursday, free and only on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. After a surprising victory at Gallipoli, Talat Pasha was riding high. His nationalist and populist message was now battle-tested, and he began setting his sights on some offensive military campaigns. Throughout 1915, Talat and his military triumvirate, known as the Three Pashas, conducted a series of raids into the Middle East and Russian Caucasus. Unfortunately, the Ottomans were bitterly defeated in every outing. These offensive failures were responsible for the deaths of thousands of outmatched Ottoman troops. Not only that, many died from diseases, and most of those spared from combat or disease simply deserted. Rather than analyzing these losses or taking responsibility for them in any way, Talat sought to scapegoat someone else, the Armenians. He quickly began suggesting that the Armenians had fought alongside the Russians on the Eastern Front against their so-called Ottoman brethren. As CUP leaders bought into the lies, Talat used this opportunity as his pretext for ridding the empire of this group once and for all. He spread an ominous message. The only way to bring back Ottoman glory was to get rid of each and every Armenian citizen, quote-unquote, responsible for the recent military defeats and the decaying empire. And he would do it 
by any means necessary. The decision to exterminate Armenians didn't materialize out of thin air. The ground had been laid by several Armenian and Christian pogroms over the course of the previous 50 years. And it mostly rested on widespread Ottoman resentment of the often wealthy, successful Armenian minority. With Germany no longer dedicated to protecting the group, all Talat had to do now was initiate a pogrom. Although the official decision to exterminate the Armenian population in the empire wasn't officially made until early spring of 1915, attacks had already begun almost a year prior. While near the Russian border, Ottoman troops would capture and slaughter Armenian civilians for no apparent reason. They claimed that the Armenians had fought on the side of the Russians, but the accusation was easily disprovable since thousands of Armenians were fighting in the Ottoman military. Regardless, these attacks and subsequent propaganda led to additional massacres of innocent Armenians throughout the empire. That is, until the decision was finally made to actually round up Armenian nationals and place them in prison camps. Beginning in April 1915, 41-year-old Talat turned his anti-Armenian pogrom up to full gear. First, he targeted Armenian leaders from the political, religious, and intellectual spheres. The night of April 24th in Istanbul was almost analogous to Kristallnacht in Nazi Germany 23 years later. Ottoman forces rounded up and arrested Armenian elite, destroying their homes and businesses in the process. Meanwhile, the government spread propaganda claiming that the Armenians were plotting anti-Islamic uprisings and sought to murder Muslims throughout the empire. And to cover their tracks and continue their pogrom, Talat and the CUP passed a provisional law sanctioning the pogroms by declaring the Armenians a threat to national security. Once most Armenians were removed from the capital, the pogrom spread across the empire. From May to October, Armenians were removed from Eastern Asia Minor, Western Anatolia, and the province of Adirna. Many were forced into trains and sent to live in concentration camps out in the Syrian desert. However, hundreds of thousands of Armenians didn't even make it to the camps. Instead, they were massacred on the spot or died from starvation or disease during the harrowing journey. In Central Asia and East Asia Minor, this was especially egregious. By September 18, 1915, one of Talat's deputies from the region bragged that he had removed 120,000 Armenians from Diyarbakir, a city near the Tigris River in present-day Turkey. In this case, removal meant murder. Armenian men and boys of fighting age were the most frequent victims. To preempt any revolt, they were summarily executed by Ottoman death squads on the journey to the desert. Surviving Armenian women were forced to find ways to dispose of their bodies. The women attempted to handle this task with dignity by digging graves. The Ottomans, however, simply dumped the bodies into the nearby rivers. When this happened, the bodies would often dam up the rivers or divert their flow. When the women were finished with their immediate task, they resumed their journey to the desert camps. 
However, many were kidnapped, raped, and sold into Ottoman households as slaves or taken to slave markets throughout the Middle East. Those who survived the journey faced the same brutal treatment once at the concentration camps. Only now, the oppressive Syrian heat beat down on their backs. By early 1917, the large-scale massacres ceased, but the damage was already done, damage unlike anything else perpetrated in the modern era. The genocide seems to have been accepted, if not celebrated, by nationalists within the empire. But there were some on the outside who spoke out against it. One notable figure was a Swiss Protestant missionary named Beatrice Rohner. Rohner arrived in Aleppo in 1915 and established a sort of underground railroad, which she used to transport money to displaced Armenians. This allowed them to purchase food and water from nomadic merchants in the desert. She also helped deliver letters and other forms of correspondence to relatives and embassies she hoped would be sympathetic to their plight. Unfortunately, most of those pleas fell on deaf ears. Rohner also ran an orphanage in Aleppo that housed nearly 1,000 homeless children, most of whom were Armenian. Almost none would have survived without her help. Others spoke out against the horror, too, including a high-ranking CUP member named Ahmed Riza. But Riza's pleas for humanity were quickly dismissed by Talat, who warned him, if he really wished to benefit the Armenians, he better keep quiet. Unfortunately, fighters like Rohner and Reza were few and far between, because by the start of 1917, Talat was more powerful and popular than ever before. Talat was able to convince the Ottomans that he had defeated their true enemy within the empire. Furthermore, he allowed Muslims from the surrounding territories to move into Armenian homes and essentially replace them within the empire, an effort to re-Islamify his domain. And while Muslim civilians may have benefited from new spreads of land, it was high-ranking members of the CUP and the military who claimed the most valuable spoils for themselves. These included more than 90 million square meters of fertile farmland, 40,000 buildings and factories, and 26 mining concessions. In fact, the mining and cotton industries, which had been the domain of Armenians, were now completely expropriated by the Ottoman government. In early 1917, Talat was finally and officially named the Grand Vizier, or Supreme Leader of the Ottoman Empire. Though he'd been the de facto leader in the preceding years, he was now firmly and inexorably in control. And while this might sound like a major event, all it really meant was that the unnamed few who opposed Talat had simply given up and accepted him. But even with an iron grip on the empire, Talat was still fearful that there were enough Armenians remaining to either regroup outside his purview or to attempt an uprising. So Talat rededicated himself to figuring out how to rid the empire of its remaining Armenians. In the process of plotting the final stages of his ethnic cleansing, Talat was able to seize on yet another event outside the empire. 1,500 miles north of Istanbul, in the streets of Petrograd, Russia, 
the Bolsheviks had successfully overthrown the provisional government and established a socialist government. Within months of taking power, the new Bolshevik government signed the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk with the Central Powers, ending World War I for Russia. The Treaty of Brest-Litovsk actually helped Talat. Ottoman territory, which had been previously seized by the Russians, was given back to the Ottomans. For Talat, this was a major symbolic and ideological victory. It demonstrated that his alliance with Germany was paying dividends and that his pledge to reclaim portions of the empire was coming to fruition. All of which led Talat to take another page straight out of the dictator's playbook and foment his cult of personality. Despite a very mixed military performance, Talat and the CUP began a coordinated effort to portray Talat as the savior of the empire. He had wrested it from the pernicious influence of the Armenians and fended off a British naval invasion at Gallipoli. With this new identity, Talat actually laid out a coherent agenda. This included reforming the Ottoman legal system and fixing the economy, which he and his acolytes had crippled through their own avarice and incompetence. Meanwhile, he was honored throughout Germany and Austria and bestowed with the Order of the Black Eagle. At the time, this was the highest honor conferred by the German government. Now, it seemed, even the international community was beginning to take him seriously. But the adulation and respect were extremely short-lived. During this period, Ottoman troops had been attempting to reclaim land outside what was designated in the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk and closer to the Middle East. None of these operations were supported by Germany and soon drove a wedge between Talat and his German friends. And a more immediate problem for both sides was the entry of the United States into the war. Within a year, the tide in Europe had shifted in the Allies' favor. And after several brutal and decisive victories, it appeared that the Central Powers were all but defeated. By the summer of 1918, Talat was at odds with his German allies and watching in fear as Allied troops advanced from nearly all directions toward the Ottoman Empire. As it turned out, Talat's reign as Grand Vizier, supreme omnipotent leader of the Ottoman Empire, would be a brief one. Coming up, to the victors go the spoils, to the loser a self-imposed exile in Berlin. Now, back to the story. For ten brutal and relentless years, the CUP party had ruled over the dying Ottoman Empire. At the top of the ladder was 44-year-old Grand Vizier Talat Pasha. Though he rarely brought greatness to the empire, his populist posturing and deadly use of propaganda had allowed him to become the most powerful man in the nation. But over the course of a few short months in 1918, that power came crashing down. Initially, it looked like Talat could avoid disaster. Even though the end of World War I was disastrous for Germany and Austria-Hungary, not that much was different in the Ottoman Empire. Little, if any, fighting had occurred within its borders, and Talat himself was still remarkably popular. But by mid-1918, the empire was at a crossroads, thanks to peace negotiations. 
As part of the Central Powers, they would be forced to cede territory and subject to sanctions. Ultimately, this meant Talat had to admit that his grand plan to restore the glory of the Ottoman Empire was all bluster. Except he couldn't. The prospect was too humiliating. So Talat took the only other option he could think of. He left. Even though he may have been forgiven for his failure, considering his ongoing popularity, Talat had too much hubris and too much shame to face his people or to be held accountable. So with his massively bruised ego in tow, Talat abandoned his subjects and his empire and fled to Germany. On November 10th, he arrived in Berlin. The very next day, World War I officially ended, and more importantly, the defeat of the Central Powers was official too. Ironically, the same day Talat arrived in Berlin, Kaiser Wilhelm II of Germany, one of the principal architects of World War I, left Berlin. Somehow, Talat was tolerated and even welcomed where the Kaiser was not. He was given an apartment and financial support from wealthy German friends and supporters. In many ways, Talat's life in Berlin wasn't that different from his time as a political exile in Salonika in his 20s. He founded an organization of like-minded people who clung to the delusion that the Ottoman Empire would rise again from the ashes and that Talat's pursuit had been a noble one. In fact, as post-war negotiations began in earnest, another Turkish nationalist movement formed in opposition to ceding land or control to the victorious Allied forces. Talat seems to have supported them from abroad, urging them on in their endeavors. But one of the first acts that they were unable to stop was the recognition by the Allies of the First Republic of Armenia, located in the Southern Caucasus region. The Allies endeavored to finally let the Armenians live in peace. Tragically, that dream was short-lived. Within a few years, one of the leaders of the nascent Turkish nationalist movement, Kemal Ataturk, took power of the Ottoman Empire. In the process, he founded the Republic of Turkey and became its first president. Ataturk is often credited as the secular statesman who would shepherd the country into the modern era. But in many ways, he did little to distinguish himself from Talat, especially when it came to his treatment of Armenians. In 1918, Kamalist Turks instigated a partial blockade of food and other essentials to Armenia. As a result, an estimated 200,000 Armenian civilians died. Two years later, in 1920, the Soviets occupied Armenia, which forced the Armenians to live under yet another oppressive government until 1991, when they finally gained their independence. While the Armenians managed to persevere, the same cannot be said for Talat Pasha. Though he remained something of a folk hero for the new wave of Turkish revolutionaries, he was largely irrelevant after it became clear that Kemal Ataturk was the true future of the country. Toiling in Berlin, Talat made no plans to return to Turkey. Instead, he spent most of his time talking about the old days and occasionally communicating with Kemal Ataturk, that is, 
until the spring of 1921. On the morning of Tuesday, March 15th, Talat left his apartment to buy a new pair of gloves. A few steps from his apartment, a young Armenian named Sogomon Taylerian passed Talat on the sidewalk. Upon gazing at him, Taylerian immediately recognized the former Grand Vizier. A few moments later, Taylerian doubled back and started to follow Talat. When he was only steps behind the man who had orchestrated the genocide of the Armenian people, Taylerian grabbed a pistol and shot Talat in the back of the head. The 47-year-old Talat, ex-leader of the Ottoman Empire, died instantly. Taylerian eventually stood trial in Germany, where he was ultimately acquitted of all charges. Among those who followed the trial was a Polish-Jewish lawyer named Raphael Lemkin, the same Lemkin who had coined the term genocide. Talat Pasha wasn't the only Pasha to meet his end at the hands of Armenians. Both Ahmed Chiamal Pasha and Ismail Anvar Pasha died not long after the fall of the Ottoman Empire. Chiamal was assassinated in July 1922, and Anvar was ambushed in battle a few weeks later. Unfortunately, the vast majority of Turks who played a hand in the Armenian genocide escaped justice. In 1919, a so-called tribunal was organized in Turkey to examine the atrocity. Although it was acknowledged that almost a million Armenians had been murdered, only three officials were executed for their hand in the genocide. And by 1923, Ataturk passed a series of laws shielding any Ottoman Turks from additional prosecution. Even today, the Armenian genocide is not common knowledge in some communities, despite the staggering statistics that surround the event. The Ottomans decreased the Armenian population in the empire by at least 90%, and up to 1.2 million Armenians were murdered. It wasn't until recently that Joe Biden became the first American president to openly acknowledge the genocide's existence. And given that many may not be familiar with the details of the Armenian genocide, it's likely they may not know about the man who orchestrated it all. There are many leaders today who can be hard to distinguish from Talat. Men and women who will do and say whatever it takes to rise to power and hold on at all costs, including scapegoating their so-called enemies, political or otherwise. The approach didn't work out for Talat in the end, though which should serve as a lesson that cycles of prejudice, oppression, scapegoating, and violence are never the answer. Thanks for listening to Dictators. Next week, we'll begin a new season exploring the lives and careers of the most murderous and corrupt Popes of the Renaissance. Among the many sources we used for today's episode, we found Talat Pasha, father of modern Turkey, architect of genocide by Hans Lucas Kaiser, extremely helpful. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other Spotify originals from Parcast free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Dictators is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler. 
Sound design by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Dictators was written by Tony Goodman, with writing assistance by Joe Guerra and Nora Battelle, fact-checking by Adriana Romero, and research by Bradley Klein. Dictators stars Kate Leonard and Richard Rossner. Hi, it's Carter from Parcast. Every Thursday on Conspiracy Theories CIA Edition, we're uncovering secrets hidden deep within the archives of the Central Intelligence Agency to bring you a special collection of episodes from shows across our network. Follow the new Spotify original from Parcast, Conspiracy Theories CIA Edition. Listen free only on Spotify. Spotify.